Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about cars and culture. I'm David Brown, and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories with David Campbell, including Victorian motorists are Australia's most find. And I'm joined for the rest of the program by Errol Smith as we discuss a road test of the new Chinese dual-cab ute that has just been launched onto our market, the LDV T60. Toyota has showcased a concept car that could hold a conversation with you. What would you like it to say? And in our discussion session, we take a free and easy tour around some quirky subjects, including turning the backyard shed into more than just a normal train set. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. In Australia, motorists contribute over $1 billion a year to government coffers, thanks to speeding fines from fixed and mobile speed cameras. The most fined motorists in Australia are those in Victoria, which last year paid over $363 million in speed camera fines, according to the Department of Justice and Regulations annual report. New South Wales came in second with fines of $274 million, $194 million from speed and red light cameras and $80 million from police-issued speeding fines. Queensland came in third with fines of $226 million and South Australia fourth with fines totalling $174 million. Ahead of its Australian launch early next year, the next-generation Commodore has been boosted with global automotive experts shortlisting the Opel Insignia for the 2018 World Car of the Year. Developed hand-in-hand with the next-generation Commodore, the Opel Insignia has received rave reviews in Europe since its introduction earlier in 2017. Critics have been impressed with its sleek styling and high-tech features including wireless charging and a 360-degree camera. Australians have the chance to experience the Opel Insignia, badged as the new Holden Commodore, when it is launched here in February next year. The 2018 Car of the Year is due to be announced at the New York International Motor Show in March 2018. Last month, the 30th World Solar Challenge was held, with 42 competitors vying for victory. At the end of the 3,022-kilometre race from Darwin to Adelaide, Dutch teams won both the Challenger and Cruiser classes. The Nuon Solar team claimed their seventh title in the Challenger class, with the University of Michigan coming in second. The Dutch solar team Eindhoven won the cruiser class with Germany in second and Australia in third. Eindhoven's Stella V family car uses the solar navigator platform from Ericsson's connected urban transport system. Google and Volkswagen have come together to investigate ways of using the surge in processing speed from quantum computers to help with traffic flows and autonomous driving. While quantum computing is still in its infancy, it is far faster than conventional technology. Volkswagen is working with Google on computing simulations and algorithms. 
Volkswagen's IT department wants to use the extra processing speed to develop new structures for high-performance battery materials, artificial intelligence and traffic flows for self-driving cars. Renault has recently confirmed that the reborn Alpine A110 Sports Coupe will be launched next year with pricing of between $90,000 and $110,000. Australia is only the second market outside Europe to get the A110, which will be sold through a limited number of yet-to-be-named Alpine dealers. A range of other variants will follow, likely to include a convertible and an SUV. The A110 is powered by a mid-mounted 185-kilowatt, 1.8-litre four-cylinder turbo petrol engine with a 0 to 100 kilometres per hour acceleration time of 4.5 seconds and an electronically limited top speed of 250 kilometres per hour. And finally, to Donald Trump. The American president is in Asia and recently addressed Japanese automakers. He suggested that Japanese car companies consider making their vehicles in the US rather than shipping them over. He appeared to be unaware that Japanese car makers have been making vehicles in the United States for 35 years. In 2016, Honda, Subaru, Nissan, Mazda and Toyota built 2.4 million vehicles in the US, accounting for one-third of all US auto production. And that has been the news. Chinese cars in the Australian market haven't done particularly well, but then again needed the Japanese cars many years ago, and it took a while for Korean cars to get up a credibility in our market. Now uh, new Chinese cars are coming onto the market, most particularly Errol Smith and I have been testing the latest LDV T60. It's a dual cab ute, obviously a booming part of the market. So, are they doing well? Have they caught up? Or are they catching up? Or what's the situation? Errol joins me on the line now. Errol, you'd have to say that from a technology point of view, including its safety rating, it's starting to get there. You know, I think up until very recently, the Chinese, you know, they make pretty much everything we use, but they just weren't in the race when it comes to cars. But um, I, I think that's changed with this. It's, it's got better safety features and warranty for less money than you can get from uh, some of the other more household brands. They're clearly aiming for a low price, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but they have a five-star safety rating, which I think is clearly streets above many of the others. But having said that, the Haval brand, uh, which is more SUVs, well, not that, that particular model, different company, I believe, have come onto the market and I think you and I tested one a year ago thinking it's not bad the next model will probably be practically there. Yeah well I think LDV is a lot closer than Haval were then. Criticisms we we have of this car if you don't mind me speaking for you are the same criticisms that could be made of vehicles from any other manufacturer. In the utility class Yes, yeah. Okay, yes. let's pick it. It comes with two options. Both have either a six-speed or a manual gearbox and the one engine, 110 kilowatts, 360 newton metres, a 2.8-litre turbo diesel. Not huge numbers, a big, fairly big motor, but not great power output. That's probably the, the first thing we noticed is that it's a little bit underpowered. And 110 kilowatts isn't a lot, that sort of small car territory, but um, not that you get 
360 newton meters out of a small car. But um, yeah, it was a bit um, on the on the more gutless side, I think. 360 newton meters isn't enormous either. When you were overtaking on a country road or going up a hill, I think at one stage when you and I were driving it on the launch, we suggested, uh, you suggested that I go flat out to see what it's like accelerating, of which my answer was, I am. Yes. <laughs> Yes, um, and the other thing that we we didn't really like was the ride, um, at least in the Lux model. They have decided to have the Pro and the Lux model, the Pro being the, the, the lesser of the two, um, have different handling, and we found the Lux was a, a bit probably a bit too hard for, for anything but a suburban street. We did a big loop around uh, Bathurst and mm. out on the secondary arterial roads, which... Out there, I think we even got down to some roads that had no line marking on them. The bumps in the road were really felt very strongly with the Lux to the point of it being tiring. We then looped back on a different road or set of roads by the Pro, as in for the tradie. And as you say, I think we found it to be a little a little bit more comfortable. It just seemed to be mm. not as jarring as yeah. the Lux version. But having said that, I mean, and neither of these things are sort of fatal problems it's not that uh, i mean the stereotype of the chinese cars of the past was that they were you know poorly designed poor quality etc and uh we just sort of didn't really pick any of that in this it's everything you got in the car everything is where you expect it to be it was easy to just get in and drive it's got a good set of features it's got a better safety rating than some of the competition. I'd have to say that SUVs have improved their quality of ride coming close to the sedan, the smoothness mm. of the sedan, but the utes haven't got that far. And so, as you say, the competition is perhaps um, mm. not in the, the five-star rating as far as comfort goes. These commercial utes are always going to have a bit of a compromise in their ride because you want them to be able to carry, you know, 800 kilos in the back and 3,000 of the table of which this will do that that's about what 850 kilograms in the back and about eight three thousand is the rating for the towing mm. but i've got to say that i think it comes pretty close to you being able to do both whereas in in a number of utilities you can you can't load up to the full capacity in both those factors that yeah. if you if you're towing the full towable weight then you're only got 100 kilograms or so that you can put in the back so i think that's pretty good five star rating we said a warranty of five years 130,000 kilometers and it's uh, along with that five years comes uh, roadside service doesn't it but not fixed pricing so they're backing no. themselves a bit there yeah, absolutely. And and if you look at, you know, the, the market leader in this segment is, of course, the Toyota Hilux, and they're running you a three-year, 100,000-kilometre warranty. All right, Errol, <laughs> we're going to talk another discussion point just after this break. You're listening to Overdrive. Now, Errol, at the Tokyo Motor Show, Toyota has had their iCar, not surprisingly, the electric car going around with fancy designs on the outside, but... They've come up with a, the UE a system that will work within the car. It uses artificial intelligence, and so it will be able to hold a conversation with you. What would you like it to say, or what would you like it to do, and, and what subjects, perhaps, Errol, would you like to converse with it? Firstly, is it heading in the right direction? 
It's an interesting concept, isn't it, David, that one of the, the reasons they want to do this is to sort of keep you awake. But at the same time, they want, to, they want you to be relaxed and, and happy. So um, it, it's actually got uh, – it, it said in the, the, the article that they, they describe it as part spa attendant, which had me slightly concerned. I, I was wondering just how intimately uh, you intended to get to know this car. When, when they say the seats will give you a massage, do they say that with a wink? That's a good question, David. I, there was no, no mention of a happy ending or anything like that. The driver's seat does have a built-in massage unit. What I like, though, is that uh, it, it has the option of it can give you the fastest route home or it can give you the happiest route home. And I love that the option of that. I believe the happiest route generally involves a stop at the pub. Well, I did some talk back the other day where I was talking about computer models and how they pick the route that they think people will take based on time, distance and cost. And some guy rang in and said, no, 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 I drive by the water. So that there could be the happiest route. The only thing is that also raises from an engineering and transport planning point of view of what is the happiest route for you or the happiest for the community. Mm. So if you're driving past schools, quiet residential streets or going over roads that were not made to be arterial roads, is that happy for the community? I think not. Part of what the, uh, the this concept is that the car gets to know you and your personal preferences and tastes and adjusts itself accordingly. So it'll, you know, if you don't like the ocean you've got a phobia or something it'll you know avoid water and that, that kind of thing okay oh well what also about bridges the, the only problem is that we've learnt that the world of computing now has algorithms that claim to know you mm. that maybe that's not quite as well knowing as you might like so for example if you you find in cars that they're often quite wrong when you're trying to get a phone number or, or information. I certainly know a number of people, you and I included, who've become frustrated with the various systems. The voice recognition is really critical for this type of thing and it's never been quite there in uh, most of the vehicles that we've tested, but um, they're, they're sort of claiming that this is at a conversational level. So uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. What I want it to do is I want it to remember to get the milk on the way home because I've forgotten. Mm. You know, I want it to, to be helpful in those kind of ways. And, and it's, it's intended to be a bit like, you know, Siri or these other sort of assistants that your smartphone often has. I want to say I need to get the milk and I want it to remind me when I get near the shop. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or remind me when I'm about to go home and say, no, keep driving to the shops. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But the problem is, the potential is enormous. It can, in theory, assess your condition. Are you in a happy mood or are you in a frustrated or angry mood? And that's very important. One of the biggest features of whether you're likely to have a crash is the mood you're in, among other things. But if it senses your frustration, perhaps it might try and do something about it. But if the system isn't working well, it may contribute to your frustration. (laughs) But the idea that it can converse with you to keep you awake, which is much more interesting and perhaps a a better system than just beeping at you or flashing lights at you or something to wake you up if you seem to be dozing off. Oh, I quite I love that idea that we take artificial intelligence to that level, because at the moment it's all designed by graphic designers, which say if you press the right button, you'll get to where you want to go. And I've no idea what the right button is. Mm. And it's got different words to describe the same thing in different cars. And I get totally home 
you know, there are some buttons that have home or menu on them. What's the difference? <laughs> yeah, home and menu. Home and menu, yes. <laughs> so, you know, it takes you such a long time, whereas I'd love a system that I can say, look, I'm sorry, I just don't understand what does home mean and what does menu mean and mm. give me a decent answer. Yes, it said well, take you by the happiest route. Might that almost be a spiritual exercise as well? Could well be. I, I wonder if it, this could come in uh, in different spiritual flavours. You could, you know, change the mode to put it in Buddhist mode or... Christian or Scientology. Yeah. Scientology says get angry, make angry, you know, tell it to other people. <laughs> By the way, it's a male voice, isn't it? Which is unusual. If Yui knew me well enough, it would have taken you via the flower shop. Trying to say something about your relationship, David. Could be. Errol, let's have a quick break and uh, then we'll talk some quirky news. All right, David. You're listening to Overdrive. And now we finish the program with some unusual, quirky news stories to do with motoring and transport. Errol's still with us. Errol, your backyard shed, is it one that goes as far as having the silhouettes of the tools that you pin on the wall, or could it just go much further? <laughs> well, the uh, the men's shed is, a, is, a, is one of those things that it could be a bottomless pit of, of time and distraction. Uh, an aeroplane buff... He's actually turned his shed into not one, not two, but three fully-fledged flight simulators, of all things. Uh, two Boeing 737s and a Lynx helicopter cockpit. And he's recreated them piece by piece in his Cambridgeshire home. He's mostly used, you know, the real parts from, um, you know, defunct 737s and, and real helis. And then he, he went and used a 3D printer to make the bits he couldn't source. And apparently his simulator is so good that trainee pilots have used it to practice and pass their Boeing 737 flight exams. That's stunning. That makes the home train set look like a dinky toy. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is the, this is technology for you. He must have a pretty big shed. Oh, I think it's so. A co cockpit. He's even um, done sort of little faux sort of passport check-ins and things like that. And the man's sick. <laughs> so he's going to train border control people, is he? The simulators are actually a, quite a sort of a growing niche part of the, the gaming business. There are simulators of real vehicles like planes and helicopters and cars like we have here. But you might think, well, if, you know, if you're into planes or cars or whatever, why don't you just get a radio-controlled one and just play with that? rather than mucking around with a simulator. Well, there's even simulators for radio-controlled planes, cars, helicopters, uh, model railways, everything. Oh, model railways. What I think we should have cameras on the front of trains because mm. with model railways, I'm not a keen model railwayist, but I watch them go around and I, I get fairly bored. But if you could see from the cabin of mm. the train, I think you would see more. And, and you could have multi-levels. That's what you can do in this, you know, there's a model railroad simulator where you can change the view to be inside the, the cabin of the train and, and watch it from all angles. And if you don't like the set, then you don't have to spend another, you know, thousands of dollars rebuilding it. You just click a few clicks of your mouse and you have a new, new track. Could you have a simulator of a steam train where you actually had a fire that you had to stoke? Mm, I think it'd, it'd, it'd be lacking something, though, because part of the, you know, the feel of 
of steam is the you know the smell of the coal and the fire and all that stuff. Well, I have a real fire. You could then heat the room as well. <laughs> you know, have a real thing that you light up yeah. and do. It has has his simulators got hydraulics on it? So if you're taking off, does it tilt you back, or is it just the visual on the screen? No, it's just the visual. He hasn't hasn't gone quite that far. That'd be, I think his um. He spent sort of 100k or so on this thing, but that would be in the millions if he could do that. Yeah, they're very, very expensive. I've been in a simulator for a 747, and, you know, it was pretty specky and, and, and extremely expensive because it had all the hydraulics on it as well. You could do car images as well, being able to drive down some of the great roads of the world, such as the Great Ocean Road without tourists. <laughs> and traffic, yeah. And traffic, yeah. No caravans. <laughs> Yes, but it won't have the, the sea air, David. Ah, ah well, Smellathon, that's coming into movies. Yeah, that's, anything's possible. Errol, there was a case in uh, South Bay in San Francisco where the proud owners, uh, they found there was a little auction. Not many people saw it, but it was for buying a street, a block-long private oval street lined with 35 mega-million-dollar mansions. For 95000 and change in the city-run auction streaming, st- uh, stemming from an unpaid tax bill. Mm. So that is interesting. Is their whole concept here of having privately owned roads, which we see from a toll point of view, but might there be other opportunities as well? Yeah, so it's interesting you bring up the tolls, isn't it? Because uh, that's a, pretty much exactly what the owners of this street could do to all the, the residents. Just charge them a, a fee or, or, or rent the parking space on the street. Or to non-residents, they could charge mm. a big fee. Or charge people to access their own house okay. through, through, their, through their driveway. Maybe, maybe it could be, you know, like the, uh, the troll under the bridge. If you did it like the stock market, then you would expect to have a, a price for it, but also dividends to pay for it. Could there be dividends based on how well you keep the street how well it's used for the for local kids and so on, that you suddenly had an ownership of the street which could change your nature of your thoughts to what that street should be. If it's owned by the local government, well, they should look after it, should be wide and what have you. But if it was really your land, or you had a, an interest in that land, some of the shares in it, might you have a different attitude altogether? Well, it would vary, wouldn't it? Because people have different attitudes to their own property. Some people just don't really give a stuff about maintaining the garden and oh. mowing the lawn and all that stuff, whereas others are, want to keep it pristine. So you could have a, a mishmash of, of uh, sort of quality of the street. The whole concept of what the street is, and I heard a, at a conference the other day a person say, we have an attitude that the local street is seen as something you can use to travel as quickly as possible to an arterial road, and then you travel as quickly as possible to your destination. That That's wrong. A, a local street is not for travelling quickly. It's not for doing anything that maximises your travel experience it's or minimizes your travel time it's to do with the local community as we talked about in mm. that other story yes mm, i yeah. quite like it's, it's interesting that that not only you know normally you buy or rent the land you live on but now you'll be buying or renting the street that you park uh, and drive on and I, I wonder if someone parks on my private street can i get them towed for trespassing 
and then charge him a big fee to get it out of the compound. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's money in this tape. I think there is. <laughs> there's also a lawsuit uh, because, you know, obviously all these multimillionaires um, are somewhat peeved that they weren't even aware of the auction. And it was all over some unpaid taxes because the tax bill was going to some old address of the accountant. Maybe let them know that the address had changed. <laughs> Serves them right. Yes. But the other question is, I'm sure they'd be prepared to pay huge amounts of dollars in legal costs just to avoid a little bit of tolls, which might be more useful to them along the line, which yeah. raises the question of what you might call frivolous lawsuits. Errol, you have a story. Yeah, well, David, if you're flying on a budget airline, you wouldn't expect to have real champagne on board. In fact, I'd be surprised if they had anything decent to drink at all. But Sunwing Airlines in Canada offered a champagne toast to its travellers, and one fussy traveller is now suing them for providing sparkling wine rather than genuine champagne, which, of course, only comes from the northeastern region of France by the same name. See, a frivolous lawsuit, so those that are filed by a party or attorney who is aware that they are without merit because of a lack of supporting legal argument or factual basis. I think it ought to be, I don't care, you know, he might be technically right. It's, courts are paid for by the community and you get some incredible wanker who wants to use the court system because he didn't get the wine he thought he deserved. Mm. Flogging would be too too soft a thing <laughs> from my point of view. I, yes, it's, I mean, this is really just a false advertising thing, really. And uh, and, and, and it's, it's not like an advertiser has ever lied or exaggerated about the product they were selling. Well, the, yes, but their defence, and I think there's some validity in it, is the word champagne is now being to, uh, used to denote a service that is meant to be quite good. You know, it's champagne service. It doesn't yeah. say you actually get champagne. Now, how will this go with car companies who have cars with a sport mode in it? Mm. Or the sport the sport version, which is yeah. exactly the same vehicle, but with a wing on the back. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've, we've seen a few of those. <laughs> the thing about this, I quite like the defence line, you know, what's the definition of the word champagne? So don't waste our money. Don't waste our community money in taking this. Do it in Judge Judy or some entertainment system. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, she'd probably just kick it out as being stupid. You know what I think they should do in the court? They should have a taste test. See if they can tell the difference and they, yeah. <laughs> then they win, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and everything else is just a, a wink. Errol, you've been with us for the whole program and I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. No worries, David. And that was Errol Smith. That was some quirky news and this has been Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. The program is podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Listening.